0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Shanice Chris, a Doctor of Science candidate in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I am truly excited to introduce our speaker for the Voices in Leadership Seminar today, the Honorable Dr. Leslie Ramsamy. Dr. Ramsamy is currently the Minister of Agriculture in Guyana, South America. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I had the wonderful privilege of working with Dr. Ramsamy while he was Minister of Health. He served in this position 10 years from 2001 to 2011. I saw firsthand the passion Minister had and still has for the people and the health of people in Guyana. I was inspired by his riveting speeches about HIV testing, his advocating for funding for vital health improvements in Parliament, which he's been a member of since 1997, and his ability to motivate his staff to contribute countless hours based on his unwavering vision and devotion. Dr. Ram Sammy's impact has had global implications including serving as the president of the 61st World Health Assembly from 2008 to 2009. The World Health Organization website states that he cautions the health sector not to wait for the perfect programs, techniques and interventions while people suffer. He said, we must be practical and pragmatic about health interventions for communities. His career has continuously shown proven solutions in the midst of uncertainty. He has published over 70 70 scientific publications and is the author of HIV AIDS, a public health challenge. He has a bachelor's degree in microbiology from Pace University and a master's in biology and a PhD in biochemistry from St. John's University. Before I turn the session over to our moderator, Dr. Ashish Jha, KT Lee professor of international health and director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Please join me in welcoming the Honorable Dr. Leslie Sammy to the Voices and Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.
0: So good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you all for making it. This is a terrific way to kick off a new year. and. W- One of the purposes of having a Voices of Leadership series, you may be wondering, why do we do this? What's the point and what's the purpose? If you look across history at some of the best ideas around improving health, uh, improving the welfare of populations, many of those programs, some of the smartest ideas, fail to achieve the goals that they are set out to. And if you try to understand why that is, why do some programs succeed, why do some efforts succeed while others don't, the critical ingredient that we see over and over and over again is great leadership. When there is great leadership, even even ideas that are not perfectly formulated, even ideas that are still in in their infancy can end up having a profound effect. And without good leadership, it's very hard to get very much done. So leadership is very important. It's been a source of a lot of study, a lot of focus. Um, What we feel, what the school feels, what the division of of public health leadership feels is that there is no better way to understand leadership than to bring great leaders into the school and hear from them the challenges they faced, how they've overcome them, how they've prioritized, um, how they have inspired people around them to work harder and to work more effectively. And I don't think there is a better person to kick off 2015 in terms of thinking about what great leadership in public health looks like than Dr. Ramsamy. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. And the title of today's session is Leadership in HIV AIDS. And that's where I'm going to start. But I want to promise that I want to divert from that and talk about a broader set of issues, uh, because you have written about and thought about a whole set of challenges around public health, global health, both in Guyana, but, but more globally. But let's talk about HIV-AIDS for a second. Let's begin there. 2001, you've become the Minister of Health. What does the landscape of HIV-AIDS look like in Guyana? And how do you begin to formulate a strategy for combating it, for bringing it under control, uh, for preventing further infections?
2: Th- thank you, Assis. And thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a real, real honor. And I'm not quite sure that I'm an expert at leadership. But I do find myself in the right places. Not always at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> but I do find myself in the right places, some very difficult places. And in 2001, Guyana was a very difficult place to be when it comes to HIV AIDS. And I'm glad that it then was HIV slash AIDS. And today it is HIV and AIDS, two very different things. But at the time, pregnant women, 7%, were testing positive for HIV. About 700, 800 women uh, were HIV positive. Women giving birth were HIV positive. About 150 babies were being born. With HIV. There was no medicine. Testing was restricted. It was a forlorn type of situation, a desperate situation, one without hope. But I've never known hopelessness. And I don't really have problems. I have issues to confront. And you started out with strategies, and I and a lot of people were talking about our strategies, and so, including the US, CDC, and others. And I thought what was missing was the vision. Um, where did we want to be? So I wanted everybody to take a step back and let us say what we want, where we want it to be, not just in 2005, the normal five-year strategy, but in 2010, 2015, 2020. And I wanted the time to to look at this future, to be with some real, tangible, concrete things to see. Starting out with, with babies, that by 2015, we should have no babies born with HIV. I was told then that That's too ambitious. Let's not talk about elimination of mother-to-child transmission, because it has to be an incremental program, an incremental story. We've got to talk about reduction, and I refused. Said that, no, I want to know what is the timeline from now to when we can get up tomorrow morning and there are no babies born with HIV that as of today, no one is going to sleep well at nights knowing that a baby will be infected with HIV. And so if you guys want to sleep well, let's do this early. (laughs) So so this was a situation I found that was frightening, but I thought it was possible. Because when I looked at HIV, it was about our behavior. It is about how um, we manage this. And the ability to, the science, the tools, the resources to end HIV was there. And could we have done with more then? Yes. But we had enough even then to end AIDS. And we had enough then to begin the trajectory of elimination
0: of HIV. So can I ask, and I promised that I would come back to non-HIV stuff later, but I'm going to, you made a similar, what would seem to be an extremely ambitious argument. You said we should eliminate uh, preventable maternal deaths and preventable child deaths by 2025. Yes. Sort of a crazy notion, and yet you do this. You said no maternal child transmission by 2015. Tell I me, mean, why, why set such ambitious goals? Because it does make a lot of people nervous that you're not going to be able to meet them.
2: We shouldn't be afraid that we can't meet uh, 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 and realize our dreams. Uh, I, I am a dreamer, and I admit that. I openly confess that. Um, but I don't think that you could really visualize your world effectively unless you can dream about it. And dreams are not just opaque things, um, amorphous things. Dreams drive you to do things. I grew up in a uh, developing country where we were deprived of many things. I grew up in a village where every other week a woman was being buried for giving birth. And I'm driven by equity. I came to the United States and I wondered why is it that the woman in Kigali um, or in Niger so, can't give birth with the same level of certainty that a woman in Boston, for example, could. And why is it that a child born in Tanzania has less than one-tenth of a chance compared to a baby born in New York um, to grow? And these things drive me. I do not believe it is too ambitious for me from a developing country to dream of a certain standard of living um, that is comparable to people in the US or so. And I'm not talking about having all of the things. I'm not talking about um, being driven to school, that my children should be driven to school. I'm talking about my child should have access to education. I'm talking about the natural process of giving birth. Um, We are all God's children. And we are all supposed to get up in the morning and watch the green leaves and the red roses. And so why is it that I have to settle for something like my child will only have a 10% chance of being born safely? Um, I do not, I disagree, I reject the notion that those are dreams that are too lofty and impractical. And that's what drives me. And that's why I will keep harping on people that we have to achieve a level of equity in the world. That must be the global responsibility. Where do we reach for the stars is another thing. Individual, family, community, national responsibilities. But globally, why should some of us have a life expectancy of 50, and some of us a life expectancy of 80? Why can't we be somewhere in the middle? Um, Why can't we say 75 at this time is a good number and that we all should strive, that the minimum life expectancy anywhere in the world is 75, and if some of us Can be 100, great. But nobody's going below 75. And that's our global responsibility. And that's why at the World Health Assembly, I called for a 75 by 25. And I hope the Harvard community will embrace it and adopt it and make it its own, that we should go out there and ensure that everybody everywhere have a chance to live at least to be 75 years old. That's, that's why. love
0: it. So here you are. You've set this very ambitious goal. Um, now comes the hard work of, so you've inspired people with the goal. You've inspired them to stay awake a little longer at night and work a little harder. And feel guilty. And feel guilty when they're not achieving it, <laughs> which has its own strengths as an inspirational tool. Um, What do you do next beyond the vision? How do you then begin to operationalize that vision? Tell us a little bit more about what happened in the uh, ensuing time period in Guyana as you articulated the vision, but then began to put in a plan. And I'm not,
2: I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not crazy, Um, because I do know that it takes money. It, it takes a lot of resources. It takes human resources, et cetera. And one of the great inequity in the world is inequity. Uh, it, it, it is human resource for health. Uh, because whilst in developed countries you may have maybe 30, 35 health workers to 10,000 people, in the developing countries it may be 0. 0.5 to one and a half, two point five 2.5 persons For ten thousand, and that in itself represents a constraint, an issue that we need to confront. So we need to address that. Second thing is that we will never get the five thousand or seven thousand. I I believe in the U.S. it's seven thousand dollars per capita for health. Um, And at the time in Guyana, I was Guyana in 1964, spent sixteen dollars per capita on health which was great. In 1990, we were spending $6 per capita on health. And by the time I became minister, we were spending $35 um, per capita. And I do realize that $35 per capita is not going to give me the health care that we need. One of the things is, besides inspiring people that work with you to do more with what we have, and that was my first thing, because When I met my staff in 2001, these are the things they tell. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough medicine. We don't have enough human resources. Our infrastructure uh, is almost non-existent. Our technology is not there. So how do we get this? I said to them, well, first of all, let's start with us. Can we do more than we are doing now with what we have? Can we improve quality, for example? Um, can we ensure that none of our medicines get lost and are expired, the little that we have? Um, can we ensure that the x-ray machine is not working three hours a day, but 24 hours a day? Can we ensure that the theater that we have at the main hospital is not closed at 4 o'clock um, with long lists of people You know, for simple things like hydroseal, Etc. So can we start there, because for me to go to a cabinet, to a president and a cabinet that already is overwhelmed—more money for education, more money for infrastructure, more money for housing, for water, etc.—that um, we ourselves are delivering more with what we have, um, and and of course you you do other things you. Make them feel like they're part of this process, and I remember um, using, I think it's Danny Danu and the script with a song called the "Best Part of Me Is You." <laughs> <laughs> so, so can I go to my president and my cabinet and say to to them that? the best part of me is you, <laughs> by, by letting our people know that we are the best part of them. And so we must lead by example. So let's, instead of just seeing four people per day, can we see 20? Instead of doing four cataract surgery a day, can we do 30 or 40? Uh, That type of thing. Can we see more malaria cases? Um, Can we not wait till the malaria cases come to Georgetown? Can we just go to them? Can we reach them in different ways? Because you're telling me it's two of you and you can't get out there. Well, we don't have to get out there to tell them that if they wear long sleeves at night and if, if they are under a net, they're we'll have less chance of malaria. So can we do it on television? Can we go on radio? Can we get some DVDs out there into the health centers for people to see so that it's not just one of us trying to meet a 1,000 people a day. It is meeting them through different mechanisms. These are the things. And I think that's where we started, by Going to our government and saying that with what we have, we will do this much, but the possibilities are enormous and we can achieve much more if we can get this kind of support. And that's how we increased the budget from about $35 per capita then to today it's about $200 per capita.
0: There is a great line that Julio often uh... Quotes, which is we may need more money for healthcare, but we need a lot more healthcare for our money. And yes. in some ways, it is that, that was the message. That is the message that you gave very loud and clear, and it, in fact, inspires people to put more resources into healthcare if they know that money is being spent well. Um, if you would just finish off the story, what has happened with uh, HIV and AIDS in Guyana over the last decade? Well, one, I do believe that
2: Guyana and the world can end AIDS today. Not 2020, not 2030. Because if we can have access to antiretroviral medicine, those living with HIV do not have to progress to AIDS. And that can happen today. There are many examples in the world where that has happened. That can happen today. Every person that die of AIDS, is an indictment of all of us. And we have reached a stage in Guyana where we, do, we, do not, we don't record as many AIDS deaths. In 2001, it averaged about 1,000 per year. And right now, it's less than 50. In 2001, the prevalence rate was about 3 to 5%. And today, it's 0.8%. The number of babies born with HIV is now a reason why we sometimes can't access our grants. Because we are not meeting the target number. Uh, Because we get one, or two, or three babies. But we're supposed to get 100, or 50. (laughs) And I always tell the people from the very—I'm not going to call their names—but uh, I always tell them that are you telling me that I need to go find a baby and inject them with HIV so I could treat them and meet the numbers and get this? <laughs> they, um,
0: the downsides of success,
2: but but they they get the message and yes. they do the right thing. Um, so this is where we are today. They. <laughs> the, the, the fear uh, and the reluctance of people with these very ambitious goals, you know, let's reject the trajectory of reduction, and let's embrace the trajectory of elimination, was a startling message in 2001. And um, I'm very happy to see somewhere around 2010 or so the UNAIDS adopted zero goals, or the 1990-90 goals for 2020, which is really a trajectory of elimination approach, rather than the trajectory of rejection, and certainly of, of reduction. Of reduction. Yeah. The trajectory of reduction is a good milepost, but you see, my vision doesn't stop at the milepost. I just want to get where I want to go. And where I want to go is that HIV and AIDS are not public health challenges the way it is today.
0: Let's talk about a different public health challenge. Um, and I'm going to spend another five minutes on this and I want to open it up for the audience, um, which is the public health challenge of what we call non communicable diseases. Um, when we met last week, you told me about um, the research that you were doing on diabetes, uh, and, and it made me realize, first of all, what a phenomenal um, set of skills you've, you've brought to your job and how, and how you've thought about issues over the years. But um, it seems to me that a major part of the agenda that has gotten too little attention is around non-communicable diseases. Um, it doesn't have the same pull and, and same easy ease of focus as HIV AIDS or TB or malaria um, and yet the toll is massive for everybody not just for high-income countries. How do we begin to refocus that? Because it may be hard to say we're gonna get to zero non-communicable diseases. So if if we don't inspire with a number like that how do you focus the world's attention uh, on this topic?
2: Well I think because we have lived with it all of our lives Unlike HIV at that time, the non communicable chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension and so on, we have lived with it for a long time. Every family in any country knows somebody with this. The stigma and so that is associated with HIV, not clearly there for NCDs. And it was easy for us to just accept it. It was a matter of life. And we had to get something to show people that, one, it is devastating far more in Guyana and the Caribbean and in North America than HIV. And we were not talking about that. Um, see, amputation because of diabetes, which people were used to, was not inevitable. And we needed to show people that. And you live in your little corners, you don't know, you don't realize that so much of it is happening. That people are dying at 40 and 50 and 55 years of renal diseases. And that that was not an inevitable consequence of being alive. We needed to show people that. And, and so this was the mission that we undertook, to one, let people know the numbers that indeed in Guyana, about 60% at the time of all deaths in Guyana were because of the NCDs. To show people, in fact, that it was a slow progress to poverty. And even if you are already living in poverty, you will become poorer. And if you are better off, that you are going to end up being impoverished because of these diseases. And that we can end that story. That it does not have to be like that. What is also important is that people didn't realize that these diseases were lifestyle diseases. It was something coming from God. It was your feet. It was all these things. Because I come from the Caribbean, it could be that somebody do you, Um, which is is voodoo type of of things. We had to show people that, no, it's the way we live, and that we can change um, that inevitability, that what was considered inevitable um, is something that we could change, we could determine that I don't have to live with diabetes, and I don't have to live with blood pressure, and that even if I have to live with it, I can live with it in a manageable way. And these were the things that we had to bring to the fore. And so getting people to see that smoking may be a moment of, 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 of fun and relaxation, but it has a lifetime of consequences. Um, that alcohol has its own impact. That not eating right has its own impact. And that you could eat well without being wealthy. Um, these were the type of messages that changed the way people perceive things and look at death.
0: So what I hear both on the HIV-AIDS side and on the non the noncommunicable chronic diseases is two things, sort of the first is saying the status quo is unacceptable. We don't have to live with 70 to 100 babies born with HIV, unacceptable. We don't have to live with people dying at fifty of end-stage renal disease because their diabetes wasn't well managed. And second is empowerment, telling people that they actually have the power to do something about it, that not only is the status quo unacceptable, but that people are empowered to change that. And those were the
2: messages because we also have to change the way people think about the health sector, that I am healthy as a community or as a nation because I have a good health sector. Um, And so health and life depended on this health sector. And my message was, no, it depends on you. The health sector is there to facilitate and to help. But at the end of the day, how long you live, how well you live, has a lot to do with you. And so if we need to have a high quality health sector in our country, it's not just the money we have. It's not just the number of health workers we have, the technology. And so all of these are important things. But we, together, make up this health sector, that you are very much part of it, as I am. And at the end of the day, I will be held accountable, but we all will be held accountable. And
0: so we all have to play a role. Um, so, so these were the messages. So I love those, and I'm going to ask you how it is that we take that model and target what I think is one of the biggest challenges, and we discussed this briefly the other day, one of the biggest challenges that clearly gets inadequate attention globally, and that is the issue of mental health. Mental health is one of those things where when you bring it up in an audience, everybody sort of sighs and goes, yes, we recognize it's a big problem. And then everybody sort of throws up their hands and says, we don't know what to do about it. And then you move on. How do we stop moving on? How do we decide that that too is unacceptable? The way we treat mental health in America, in England, in Guyana, in India, everywhere. Um, I, I don't expect a super easy, quick answer, but how do you, what do you, what do you think? How do we begin to move that discussion? First of all, let me say here
2: um, today that we all stand indicted, no matter where we live. Because this is a neglected developmental issue. We've neglected it 50 years ago, 20 years ago, and today. And we stand indicted. We are all guilty. Every country in the world is guilty. Mental health is a chronic disease. And mental health has been there. And so when we refused in 2001 to recognize it, when we did not include it in the MDG in 2000, when we all gathered at the summit of the UN in 2011, September 2011, and we refused to include mental health in the equation, we were were doing a disservice to our countries and to our people. And we should be held responsible. Because in fact, mental health today constitutes one of those great constraints on people being able to live long, disability-free lives. And the time has come for us today to embrace the notion that we must do something now. Um, Mental health affects every family. But part of the problem is we have always associated mental health with madness. Um, and we need to disconnect, um, just like we're disconnecting HIV and AIDS. And we need to disconnect madness from mental health. Children are not learning well in school sometimes because of that. Drug addiction, etc. In developing countries, we find easy, nice answers. Um, The voodoo priest down the street has put something in the yard, and the husband has become lazy, when in fact it could be depression and a simple medicine could solve it. And if you look at the essential medicine list in the early days and today, it is almost totally lacking of neuropsychiatric Hmm. medicines. Uh, It shows how we think. Um, Well, that in itself is madness. (laughs) Um, And we are mad not to consider mental health in our development programs. It is a developmental mountain that we need to climb. Instead, we are trying to move it, and we didn't get We didn't learn the lesson well from the philosophers like Mahalia Jackson, maybe because they didn't come from Harvard.
0: Um, I could keep going, but I am going to move to the audience. I would love questions, comments, reactions to any of the things you've heard. Um, Raise your hand. Just identify yourself and your affiliation with the school. uh, And then I think we have a question up here.
1: Hi my name is Gillian Franklin I'm a postdoc fellow in the Department of Environmental Health and like Dr. Ramsami I'm also Guyanese and my question for Dr. Ramsami today is um, as the former Minister of Health and current Minister of Agriculture what has been the most effective way that you have found to balance budgetary constraints while providing the best care possible?
2: She neglected to tell you that she's from the east of Guyana Um, As I am, and if I was to invoke the biblical thing, wise people come from the east. (laughs) (laughs) As I said from the very beginning, budgetary constraint is a real problem. But it shouldn't be the excuse not to do better. And we have used it as an excuse for a long time. There are, in fact, many what we call best buys in health that could reduce our overall cost. And that was one of the first things. You could imagine how pleased I was several years later when um, the World Health Organization and so started to publish best buy lists for health. Immunization is one such um, best buys. And I'm glad to say that all of the relevant vaccines for children are utilized in the public health sector. And by the way, Guyana's public health sector is a free service. There are no registration or anything like that. It is absolutely free um, for all the services. Uh, the, so the vaccines, all 15 vaccines which are relevant in our case, are um, available to every child, and so we don't have measles anymore. The last case was 1991. We don't have rubella anymore. The last case was 1998, and because it's just over, it's, it's just approaching 10 years, we are doing um, the certification to certify Guyanas as free of these um, illnesses. We needed to ensure that testing, for example, for HIV is available so people know their status. And Guyana today ranked in the top 10 in the world for testing of its people. I think we ranked at about 300 per thousand um, persons being tested for HIV, voluntary testing. We did this also by task shifting um they I, I noticed that's the term we use um the
0: term we use. <laughs>
2: the, because what we did is for example when the u.s cdc came to us in 2001 for hiv testing it had to be done by medical technologists you had to have counseling done by trained professionals what we did is we moved some of these things into the layman So we had, in communities, health advocates that would go around house to house with a glucometer, with a a blood pressure kit, and so on, and test people in their homes. They were not health workers. They were not trained medical technologists. They were lay people that were doing this, Um, and, and so that we spread out some of the responsibilities. And so you lower the cost, because getting value for money, getting more help for money, as Julio would say, was the policy adopted then and the strategy adopted then to achieve what we wanted. So best buys were thing. it's better for us to treat malaria cases than to allow it to become to, than to allow people to get so sick that they end up in the hospital. It's better for us to give every household in, in the malarious areas um, impregnated bed nets and prevent malaria from happening in the first place. And so whilst budgetary constraint is an important thing, let's say like diarrhea. Diarrhea and respiratory um, infections were the one and two top causes of children death. And in 1990, we had 2,600 deaths per year, on the five. Today, it's about 200. Still high, but how did we do it? Well, it's the vaccines. It's ensuring clean water. So where they didn't have portable water, we had to ensure that if they're taking water from the stream, that they use poor tablets to, to purify the water. We started a production of Aquasol, which is a bleach that we distribute home to home um, so that if they don't have portable water, they could use the bleach to purify water. We taught people to make ORS in their homes, just in case we run out at the health center. And we also did not wait for people to have a an occasion to use the ORS when they have to come to the health center. These were things we give them to take home and tell them what to do and guide them. So we were doing what I said before, extending health care from being the responsibility of the doctors and nurses to being the responsibility of the community. And so all of us were doing this in region 6, which is across the river from you um they they we started something that we now hope will extend across the country which is a team that was dedicated to go to every home where elderly people were living where there was a newborn baby where there's a pregnant woman so that they would offer care and you you could stop a lot of things before they happen and therefore Use the resources you have to do new things, more things. Um, But there were other challenges, you know, because whilst those are easy things, the primary health care system had to be strengthened. We strengthened it. And we had to resist the the global pressures, because the global pressure says primary health care is the thing, but health is not primary health care primary health care is just one of the components. And So what do I do with the guy with diabetes who now needs an amputation? What do I do with the guy with a bad heart, who will have a heart attack soon? Um, to develop the tertiary care facilities, develop the ability to do surgery, not to come to Georgetown, but across the country, building the human resources. And so the postgraduate training programs of training Doctors and surgery, obstetrics, gynecologists, etc. Um, training nurses as uh, psychiatric care nurses, training nurses uh, to work in the theater, training nurses to. Um, and, and, and those brought its own conflict, as I recall when I was living in the US in the 80s, a conflict between the anesthesiologists and the nurses that were doing anesthesia aesthetics, and so on, all these. But by doing all of that, we brought a health care now where only the rich could have left Guyana to come to America and have open-heart surgery. You can have open-heart surgery in Guyana. There are a few people now who are having kidney transplant. We have reduced amputation from 1,000 per year to less than 100 per year. Um, We started programs for eye care, cataract, glaucoma. And at the time, I was being, well, people were trying to convince me that you are developing country, focus on the front of the eye, not the back of the eye. So glaucoma and so on, don't worry with those things. As long as you could do cataract, it's okay. Well, they had cataract. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But we brought all of that, um, being able to Listen, people were living disabled lives, not the highest quality of life, because they simply couldn't see because of cataract, because they were going blind through retinopathy and things like that. And early interventions were not there. We brought that to where people live. Um, we got a far way to go, um, because the challenge when you do these things. Is you now suddenly create a demand for help? The same people who didn't know that all these things were possible, it's possible, and they will not settle for anything anymore. And so these were the challenges. But that's how you do it—best buys
0: in health. One of the remarkable things about the way you describe that shift from thinking about health as a responsibility of the primary care doctor to really thinking about the health of the population and. You could be talking about America in 2015. I mean, we spend nine thousand dollars per person on healthcare now. Right? It's an extraordinary amount of money, um, and yet one of the things that I think we have realized is we have the surgeons, we have the doctors, we have the nurses, um, but we have not thought about the health of the population. And now I think for the first time, we are going through for a different set of circumstances, but in many ways the same thing. We can't keep pouring money into this, trying to ask how do we get more health for healthcare, and that. I mean, how, how do we get more health care for our money? How do we get more health for our money? And that has created a shift to thinking about how do we deliver care at home? How do we de- deliver care in very different ways? And it's amazing to hear that this is exactly what you guys were thinking about and you were thinking about a decade ago. So America's a little behind on this, but we're catching up. <laughs> um, we have about 10 more minutes. I want make sure we get a few more questions in. Anybody else? Uh... Yes.
1: Hi, my name is Anya. I'm a um,
0: former student and now a staff member in the Global Health Department. Um, and I was wondering about the shift in your portfolio from health to agriculture and a couple of things about that. Sort of one thing is how, how have you brought the health concerns forward with you? And also if there are things that you've noticed in terms of peculiarities of being a leader in health versus in other sectors and working in other sectors, if there are just observations about that?
2: A a good question. And in fact, um, part of the reason I was moved to agriculture is to do in agriculture what I did in health. Um, But there are some things in agriculture that are intimately related to health, and I believe that Agriculture has a large role to play in terms of nutrition food and nutrition security. And indeed, one of the things that I should have responded before is that, and what we did, was in this whole approach of shifting responsibility exclusively in health to other section, um, the ministries were responsible for safe use of the road. Ministry is responsible for human services, women and children and gender issues, education, etc. same thing with agriculture and making sure Ghana is an agriculture country. They, we have no excuse to eat bad. <laughs> uh, but, but, but we eat badly because we are um, we follow trends in developed world um, and we have given up really good diets for diets that are making us sick. And at the Ministry of Agriculture, we have really enlightened people for various reasons. And also, people have to make a living. Part of our problem as an agriculture country, as in Africa and many countries, is you have a lot of people trying to help you. But their vision sometimes are clueless. Um, because we have promoted subsistence living. And listen, the family that got to get a phone for the child, because that is now not a luxury, but an important part of everyday living, can't buy that phone with subsistence livelihood. Nobody wants to live anymore in the 21st century just being able to put food on the table. That's what my parents struggled for. But today, my children can't tell their children that that's what makes you successful. And so using agriculture to generate wealth, because I believe that we could. I believe that there is no reason why 842 million people in the world every single day go hungry and why 44 million people in the Caribbean and Latin America go hungry every day. Because countries like Guyana could feed people, and therefore address health issues. These are the things that are brought to agriculture, and trying to ensure that the post-2015 agenda integrate the objectives and the vision into a single vision of a better world longer lives, more satisfying lives for people everywhere. Um, The issues we have in health of more fiber in our diet, more micronutrients in our diet, can in fact be solved by agriculture. And some of the things we learned in health of science and what science can do with health fact that we have better medicine, we need more. The fact that we have more vaccines, we may need more. We may need a malaria vaccine. We may need a vaccine for HIV. <sighs> we definitely will need a vaccine for Ebola. Um, so science could do these things. But science could also change agriculture from subsistence livelihood to real wealth. Because in Guyana, when I grew up in Guyana, Um, We were doing like one and a half tons of paddy per hectare of land. And today we're doing 5.4 tons. Um, And we want to do six. And we are showing the farmers how science could change that, using better varieties. So there are now Guyanese researchers um, the next village from has a, ri- a, a rice, rice plant breeder who can bring genetics together. And using the conditions, in her village, they have moved across the road to the seaside, which they're not supposed to do, to grow rice. Um, but the salt water comes. And so, OK, so can we get a variety of rice that is salt resistant? Um, These are the kinds of things that we bring um, to agriculture. And so science has a very important role to play. And unfortunately, we don't spend enough time and enough money. My job is to ensure that I link agriculture to a better way of life for our people. And my job is to ensure that we use science to make agriculture more productive um, for to develop the economy and make people wealthier and change the perception for farmers from being peasants to being entrepreneurs. Um, so that's that's in short, that's what I'm doing in agriculture. Wow,
0: um, a policymaker who really relies and believes in science. Um, it's another place where I think <laughs> <laughs> we could learn a few things. Um, <laughs> It's a couple of minutes before our time, and I would love it if you could just um, wrap up. You're going to be spending a a lot more time with us and in your course walking through. But principles that you have learned, some through intuition, some I'm sure through the hard way, um, about leadership and, and how you take on these what feel like incredibly difficult challenges. My goodness. Stopping maternal child transmission for HIV—such a complex problem. Uh, what advice do you have for the people in the in the room, people across uh, the globe who are watching this, um, about tackling some of these very difficult, what feels like intractable challenges in health?
2: Well, for one, I realize that there are no shortage among us of people who have strategies, who could develop strategies. We're all strategists. But you can never develop a good strategy if you don't know why you are developing it. And so you have to have a vision. You've got to know exactly where you're going, exactly what you want to do. And that's the only time a strategy uh, will be effective and meaningful. So vision. And we shouldn't confuse vision and strategy. We often do that. Um, And there are professionals who are experts at doing that, confusing (laughs) strategy with vision. Secondly, we have to do it as a team. There will always be people like myself who will come out with these sometimes too ambitious things. Um, But you have to do it as a team. People have to believe in it. You have to have allies, not opponents. And one of the mistakes we make is that when we try to push our agenda or our vision, we do so by creating separation. We have opponents. Somebody is opposed. You, you are very good at it in America. Um, whether, it's, whether it's immigration or whatever, it's a vision versus opponents, rather than all of us going at it together. And that's that's easier said than done. Um, One of the things I've learned is that I have to find the common ground so that we move forward, recognizing we have some differences, um, but we are going forward. And so it is okay when the US CDC tells me that the HIV treatment program must have certain guidelines. You must be able to do CD4. And if you can't do CD4, let them die. Um, So um, you must have CD4 capacity, and the patient must have a CD4 count of 200 before you start treatment. And I wanted to treat people immediately. Um, And so rather than that becoming the, what we are working towards, we work towards introducing treatment, knowing all along that this question is not going to disappear because the Minister of Health says he wants treatment for everybody from the beginning, regardless of CD4. Um, but instead of making that the, the, the change breaker or the the, the, the one thing that will determine whether we go forward or not. I made that part of my goals. So this is what we can agree on. Let's start there. Um, I think Paul Farmer says be nice with the people that you're working with. Um, and so that is why I always remind them, you know, you are the best part of me. Uh, <laughs> so 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 you have to have that. But you you must never be fearful of being called a dreamer, of being called impractical, because that is what makes the world better. Um, The fact that, and I am convinced that had we not set those ambitious goals, we wouldn't be where we are today. I come at the time from a country that couldn't do a simple HB reproducibly. And to be talking at that time of having open heart surgery done in Guyana seems like Don Quixote type of Mm -hmm. arrangements. Um, But you have to have the conviction that it is the right thing to do. And what gave me that conviction is that, so why? Is an accident of birth that you are born in New York and you can have it, and I can't have it? And if you can have it, there was a time that you couldn't have it. But now you have it. So what happened? There is a saying in Guyana that if goat bite you, bad things will happen to you. You mean goat bite all of us? (laughs) (laughs) So so these are some of the things I think that are essential um, if we are going to accomplish what we want to do the conviction of what you believe in um, and being able to persuade people that it is possible. And even if it is not possible right now, it is possible in our lifetime. And if we don't then don't be fearful that you can't achieve it. Um, I am always well aware that we may not achieve all these things in the time period that we would like to. But if we get Somewhere along the road, it's a journey well traveled, rather than not going. And I end with the note that our our obsession with in the pursuit for perfection is always our excuse for paralysis. It's always our excuse for not doing something because we have to that. Dot the I's. We have to cross the T's. And until we can do that, until we can have perfect agreement, until we can mobilize all the resources, we will not start this thing. And I'm saying, no, let us start now. It's like the ARV thing. If if we don't have CD4 capacity, don't start an ARV treatment program. So which is better? leave them there to die? And my thing was, listen, I know they have HIV. I know that they have TB or they have some other opportunistic infection. Let me treat them. That is better. Let's get started. Than the risks, you know, and so I think that this is an important thing for all of us. We should strive for perfection, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to be paralyzed in our pursuit for perfection and as the mahatma gandhi says if you believe it is the right thing and then you don't do it it is unacceptable it is morally repugnant that's my message wow
0: Um, I was supposed to summarize, but it's hard to know how to summarize (laughs) after that. Um, The line I take away is, uh, don't be fearful of being called a dreamer. Um, And don't wait for perfection, just get started, start moving. Um, Thank you so much for doing this. This was extraordinarily insightful and and a lot of fun for me. And we're thrilled that you're with us, and, and we look forward to learning more from you over time. Thank you. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at
1: www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.